beautiful downtown Progress City. It's a Progress City Christmas. Featuring director of the Walt Disney Archives, Becky Klein, and historian and author, Jeff Curdy. With a special appearance by our wacky neighbor, Jay. And now, your hosts, Jeff and Michael Crawford. Thank you, thank you, and Merry Christmas to everyone. Michael, how are you doing this Christmas Eve? I'm feeling super festive. The stockings are hung by the chimney with care. Um, everything's ready to go. Christmas cookies are out for Santa. It's, it's feeling good. It's my favorite time of the year, and I'm ready to go. You know, it's been a strange year, but we are, as we said on our Thanksgiving episode, we're very thankful to be here with you all, be back doing the podcast and looking back on this year. There's a lot to be thankful for. Uh, we have our health and we hope that you all do too, that you're listening and we're here by this warm fire. We have all kinds of treats, um, but mainly we're uh, excited to uh, have a little Christmas party here tonight with some friends of ours and have you here too. It's all, it's all good tonight. Yeah, it absolutely is. We're lucky enough to you know, what is Christmas without uh, a few friends dropping in safely and within the paradigms of social distancing, as we do in these kooky times. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have some people drop by and see what they have to say and talk a little about the Disney Christmas experience, because what goes together better than Disney and Christmas? That's true. You got to watch out for that icy patch. Always. Watch out for the icy patch. I, I I feel as if, you know, all all our signage, our warning signage is in place, highly visible, and everybody can steer clear of the icy patch. It's very important stuff. Uh, to have safe D at Christmas. Always safety. Courtesy, show, efficiency, all of it. Um, exactly. Michael, I want to talk a little bit about Disney and Christmas. They, they go together so well. Yes, they do. And you know, our folks love to go down to the parks for Christmas. And I wanted to ask you if you had any favorite little Disney spots around the Christmas time. Well, I'll tell you. Well, it's hard to be Main Street. I mean, that's that's the, that's the basic answer. Um, eh, the page one answer is Main Street, all decorated for Christmas, either in Florida or in Disneyland. But there are some other places that are really personal to me. One is World Showcase, ah, being yes. an Epcot person, and sure. probably the first Christmas I spent down at Disney World, because we didn't usually go at Christmas, because by the time we were out of school, things were a little crazy down there. We would go in other times a year, go in January, maybe, or other times. But when I did college program, I was there in World Showcase doing the friendship boats out to the hotels and spent a lot of time wandering around World Showcase at Christmas time. And that was back when they had the great, great, great Illuminations Christmas show, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite all time things they ever did. And wandering around World Showcase at night with all the Christmas decorations, with all the different celebrations from around the world. I love it. It sticks in my memory. That's one of my favorite places in time. 
times. And, you know, I'll also have to mention Fort Wilderness. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Most definitely, I think of Fort Wilderness first. Uh, we had a great trip down there a couple of years ago where we stayed at the cabins and you walk through Pioneer Hall. It's all very subdued and low lit. Small tree, but just great, great holiday feel to it. All the campsites are all decorated and uh, it's it's a really great place. I, I would add, well, first of all, I want to get back to Epcot. I think that tree is probably my favorite park tree. I like the Animal Kingdom tree decorations better but the where the epcot one is and the feeling of being out there on the lagoon is it's really a cool place i would add the studios on hollywood boulevard is they have really cool decorations of course the wilderness lodge and the resorts of polynesia and they they always do great stuff at christmas so a lot of great stuff a lot of great background music too Oh, yes. And I, I need to give special credit. I thought, you know, when you mentioned studios, made me think of a California Adventure out in Florida, out in Florida, out in California, you know, California Adventure, Florida, a California Adventure out in California in Buena Vista Street, oh, yes. where they have all those fantastic vintage decorations uh, are really, really some of the coolest stuff they've done. And I don't know if they still had it, have it, but for a few years they had a great old vintage style Santa, like a department store Santa, but yes. vintage there in one of the stores there on Buena Vista Street. And it was just, the, it was, the aesthetic was amazing. The helpers all dressed in sort of Veronica Lake elves. It, it was so good. So uh, extra points to whoever came up with all that because it was really great. And they had the carolers and the bell players and everything. Really excellent. That's true. Yes. So what's on tap for tonight? Well, you know, uh, we sent out invitations. We can only hope it's, it's really coming down out there. I, you know, I hope everybody can find the place. I wonder who that is. Well, look. Prolific author and historian Jeff Curdy. Welcome, Jeff. How have you been? I have been uh, at home <laughs> <laughs> wisely for a long time. Yes, sir. Uh, but I'm doing okay. You know, there's, there's uh, uh, fed, sheltered, uh, healthy. Uh, I would complain, but there are people who have real things to complain about in the world. So, absolutely. I'll, I'll stick with home safe with my family and uh, that's good enough. Yeah, that's the place to be, definitely. It's been a long year for those of us who have been, you know, keeping keeping at home safe and sound, but uh, the, the holidays are a good time for that. So it's, it's uh, definitely a good place to be. Well, we're, we're having socially distanced uh, celebration here in Progress City. We've got Christmas cookies and a wassail fountain. So just... You know, make yourself at home, whatever whatever very, you want. It's very fancy. It's very festive. Well, you know, we go for that sort of, uh, you know, mid-century Christmas party meets old world. Yeah, It's old world, but still so new. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's what we aim for. Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, we hope you would drop by for our Christmas party because uh, we really wanted to talk about your book. Uh, from all of us to all of you, the Disney Christmas card, 
which came out in 2018, hard to believe, two years ago. Oh, yeah. uh, and this is a really, uh, first, it's a really beautiful book. Uh, what what drew you to the subject matter? Disney and Christmas, to me, are such kindred ideas in a certain way. And when I was, I, I, uh, when I was a kid, there were very similar feelings because I'm elderly, of course. So back when I was a kid in the 60s and early 70s, Disney was not everywhere. Right. And Disney was not um, at the end of the Googles and on your interwebs. Um, <laughs> Disney was Sunday nights on NBC. And it was occasionally a movie that ran on the movie of the week in our old three network uh, world that we used to live in. There was a feeling about Disney that was akin to Christmas. It was a special thing and it happened infrequently. And if you were lucky, I grew up in Seattle. If you were lucky, you got to go to Disneyland. Wow. And of course, when I was a little kid, there was no such thing as Walt Disney World. There was only one Disney park. So they've always in my mind and spirit sort of occupied a sphere together. Sure. Then about, I think about 1978 or 79, there was a book that came out that was a Disney Christmas treasury. I think Abrams did it. Right. And, yeah. and it was a really... In retrospect, I mean, looking at it today, it's this really strange hodgepodge of Disney Christmas this and that's, including illustrations from the Disneyland record Mickey's Christmas Carol that came out with uh, 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 an adaptation of Dickens. It sort of led to the movie several years later of Mickey's Christmas Carol. Anyway, this book, among all of the other things, comic strips and stuff that was related to it was like a grab bag of disney christmas stuff yeah but it was in book format and of course i was even then a big book nut so uh, among the little christmas treasures in this book were some studio christmas cards i was enraptured by this stuff because i was one of those kids who would write letters to directors or producers or actors or animators and would get fan cards from the studio and that kind of stuff when I was oh, a yeah. young teen. So I got my editor at Disney Editions probably around 2008 or so. We got a, a pitch sold for something called the Disney Christmas card. And over the course of its development, it had many other hands laid upon it and it became not the book I wanted to do. It almost became a, a impulse purchase, cheap sort of icky thing that I didn't like anymore. Right. And blessedly it got canceled. About 2009, it, they canceled the project. It was the after effects of the uh, economic downturn they shelved and canceled a lot of books and to be honest i've never been quite so content to have one of my pet projects wither and die <laughs> right. because it wasn't what i i didn't think it did justice to the subject and i of course 
Disney and Christmas, like I said, are two, two of my cult personal cultural passions. So, so this came out, what, 2018? So probably around 2016, mid-late 2016, um, my editor, Jennifer Eastwood at Disney Editions, she and I were having a conversation about upcoming work and we're both big fans. So we were doing our Disney dreaming. She said, what's the one that got away? And I said, the one that got away was doing a Disney Christmas card book that really does justice to it. And she was very intrigued by that. And I said, you know what? We started out on this road some years ago. Let me see if I have anything left from that. And I happened to have a contact sheet of Christmas card images and an outline of the book, a little book description and outline. So I sent her those um, via email and lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, she said, gee, sales and marketing thinks this is terrific. Ah, yeah. So that's the birthplace of that book. It's a perfect fit. Like you said, they uh, Disney and Christmas. I mean, you and I have talked a lot over the years about Disney things. I don't think we've ever talked about Christmas, but, you know, Jeff and I feel the same way. Uh, we're very into Christmas, grew up in a very Christmassy kind of house. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's my favorite time of the year. And the combo of the two is is a really good one it works out well and it's you know gone back a long way you, you mentioned you know the books in the 60s there there are stories like the christmas at disneyland that was in was it family circle or family something? circle yes. yeah yeah and comic books oh my gosh in the old three tv network world comic books were the deal and there was typically through uh, Gold Key Comics, the Western Publishing Comics label in the 60s. There were Christmas Treasuries, Walt Disney Comics Digests. So a lot of that Disney Christmas stuff came through in comic books too. And in the daily newspaper strips, which everybody sort of forgets about. Sure. And uh, I mean, wasn't, if I'm remembering correctly, Scrooge McDuck was introduced through a, a Christmas story in the Donald Duck book, right? Uh, yes. And it's interesting because I found this, this thing that I actually put into the book, an old Rexall magazine sort of comic story layout that tells the story of a Christmas carol with sort of a precursor to uh, Uncle Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck, uh, from 1947 or 48, I think. Yes. Um, so it's, it's been going, you know, the Disney and Christmas connection go, well, it goes way back to Silly Symphonies. It goes back to the Silly Symphonies like, well, I guess Winter wasn't really a, much of a, a Christmas story, but there was uh, Santa's Workshop and Broken Toys and Twas the Night Before Christmas. So it goes back all the way to Silly Symphonies. And, and of course, the great Disney movies with Christmas stuff. I keep remembering the Christmas scene from those Callaways with Brian sure. Keith and Brandon DeWilde and of course, there's Babes in Toyland, which is a Christmas orama train wreck of a musical. That's just still, I mean, that still gets hauled out uh, annually too. And so, I, I Disney and Christmas as a subject matter has an interesting arc of past history too. Um, 
it's uh it's interesting to me though too because the as the christmas card book developed naturally as you work on things like this that have to do with disney history you you know you scratch the surface and you go oh look pretty and then you start to dig a little deeper and you go oh my gosh that's how that came about or that's the artist that did this piece and holy smokes i had no idea and if you so much about disney history is about this context and continuity in a certain way and it was really interesting in putting the christmas card book together these were somewhat creative playgrounds for mm-hmm. artists who were used to a certain degree of rigor in what they were asked to do. Sure. You know, stay on model, work with a team, you're a part of a collaboration. And there's little side projects, this, and I keep thinking of the great record album artwork, a lot of the Paul Hartley material and, and design and illustrations for publishing projects like the mm-hmm. Mickey Mouse Club magazine and Walt Disney's magazine and Yes. His books, Our Friend the Atom and, and uh, The Art of Animation. These were places where these Disney creative artists could go uh, off the menu. And I noticed that in laying out the Christmas card book to not only see these different, interesting, disparate, off-model styles, but also to see how they developed year by year over the course of of the Christmas cards, the ones in the seventies, I'm thinking of particularly with Bob Moore playing with typography as an illustration element. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or the, uh, the perpetual from the about 1947 on the calendar, each Christmas card had a calendar for the following year in it. So it was just interesting to, look at them in context and continuity and you get a sense of a rhythm and a bit of a story arc that not only tells the history of the studio in a very chronological way, but it also shows you uh, development and evolution of design ideas, uh, the work of many different artists in different styles than we're used to seeing. So apart from being a really handsome, glorious, beautifully designed book about the subject, there's layer upon layer underneath it all for the attentive and the interested fan to to really dig into. Uh, I found the cards from the 1940s especially interesting because that's one of my favorite Disney decades and in pop culture. Uh, You've got this incredible Fantasia card by Hank Porter, but you also have some great Caballeros themes cards for the Good Neighbor program, and a really amazing one with Santa on a like a World War II bomber plugging victory <laughs> through air power on the Christmas card. Yeah, that's another Hank Porter, I think. Uh, and and you know, Hank is another prolific and unsung. I mean, there's a point now too where with young Disney fans, you want to just look at them and go, you know, there were more people than Mary Blair and Mark Davis working at the Disney studio, right? Right, Um, right. Because for good or ill, those identities have been so exploited and so elevated uh, within the popular application in Disney culture that there's so many more artists and so many really distinctive, prolific, interesting artists. So that was, as I said earlier, a, a 
one of the great things to be able to showcase um, artists like Hank Porter. My favorite is Paul Wenzel. And I grew up on his artwork in my local movie theater. He yes, did sir. film ad campaigns through from the very, very last part of the 50s and up through into the early 80s. Um, Paul did key art for motion pictures and his style to me is just so glorious and so evocative of Disney in that era. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was wonderful to be able to showcase that. And then of course, the great thing about Paul was he's retired. He lives in Prescott, Arizona. And I got a hold of him on the phone, um, told him what I was working on. And I sent him a printout of uh, one of the early designs. And Paul went through meticulously page by page and was so helpful with just identifying who the key artists were, because there's no record. Sure, right. And there was so much crossover in the studio and over at WDI as well, over in, at WED in the day. So it was hard to really pin down some of these uh, artist credits. So Paul was able to identify uh, a couple of dozen of the pieces. And of course he recognized all of his own. I did this, Bob Moore did the interior, I did the cover, you know, I art directed this and then it was executed by this artist and so on. So it was really a wonderful way too to document some of these, like I said, the the unsung artists. Um, you know, work that John Hench did that's not credited, and uh, uh, just a, a fun way to remind people that there's a lot of Disney artists that they may never even have heard of, right? Who had a real impact on their perception of characters and, and stories uh, from their childhood. I'm really glad you point that out because that, that, that is a, a fun thing about this book is that these artists do get mentioned and you get to, you know, you get a, you know, a page or two about them, get to learn a little bit about them. And I'm really glad you mentioned Paul because he, I have only learned his name within, I'd say the last few years. But as you said, he is somebody whose work I knew perfectly well without knowing his name because it's such iconic and omnipresent work within the Disney studio in that era. He was and everywhere. His, and his style is so beautifully distinctive, but he could, I, I say in the book that he, he had, he defined this illustrative style, this look of Disney movie ad campaigns from the early 60s and through the 70s, as much as Bob Peake or Drew Struzan mm -hmm. influenced the trends and appearance of other studios' movie art. Sure. And he created, he created key art for nearly 100 Disney films over 25 years, as well as uh, magazine covers. You remember the old Gulf Oil, Wonderful World of Disney magazine? Absolutely, yeah. He did illustrations and covers for that. And the ad 
ad campaigns, original ad campaigns for Parent Trap and Summer Magic and that darn cats and uh, Mary Poppins with the sexy legs. Yes. And the twirly skirt. <laughs> yes. A classic. That's a, that's a Paul Wenzel or Blackbeard's ghost on the motorcycle with the, you know, college pen, the Godolphin college pennant mm-hmm. and firing his, uh, his uh, guns. And, but he, he did, uh, you know, record albums, 20,000 leagues under the sea, key art, great, a great sea monster key art piece or the uh, squid. Mm-hmm. Um, that was on the record album cover when I was a kid. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean, Songs of the Wizard of Oz, Chilling Thrilling Sounds of the Haunted House. Oh, yes. Classic. But uh, the, the Walt Disney stamp, the portrait that's on the famous uh, Walt Disney postage stamp. That's Paul's portrait of Walt Disney. That's right. Yeah. Um, One of my prized possessions, I got it uh, auctioned a couple of years ago, is a painting of his of Dean Jones that was for the um, the Ugly Dachshund poster. Yes. So it's an original piece of art. It's like a little portrait of Dean Jones, and I love it. Well, there's a spread in the book, uh, in the Christmas card book, that takes place in our chronology right as Walt passes away. And the uh, narrative section is about Disney after Walt. And I have, there's this very favorite Paul Wenzel illustration of Walt reclining in his friendly cardigan and smoke tree ranch tie (laughs) with characters bouncing all over him. Mm -hmm. And I sent it to Paul, my, my book designer and said, this is the image for the Disney without Walt page. And he said, why? I said, cause it's a Paul Wenzel illustration that I really love. And I've never seen it printed. Um, either at a good size or with um, or color accurate to the uh, original. So, mm-hmm. so that's the other good thing when you're doing a book. Sometimes you get to pick and say, "No, I want that one." <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah. But you know, as we went along too, and and got people engaged in in helping out with this book, I reached out when I was at the studio and at WDI back in the '80s and and uh, early '90s. I worked with a terrific guy named John Jensen and John was a really wonderfully affable, but and very humble and really talented guy. And at the time that I met with him, he was the director of corporate graphics. Um, He's the guy who unified and redesigned all the company logos in the eighties. So when the company name changed from Walt Disney productions to the Walt Disney company and wed changed to Walt Disney Imagineering and stuff, he created a unified graphic identity that made every logo distinct but similar. So there was visual consistency. But, you know, John is and was a a curious and and excitable artist and designer. And he started looking at the old Christmas cards because that became one of his things in the 80s. That was part of corporate graphics. Oh, okay. So he started a whole new zazz behind doing the corporate Christmas cards. And that's interesting. Yeah, so I, I could was, note there was a change. Uh, yeah. You know, you can see as they change over the years, and when that cultural change comes in the eighties, there there is a stylistic shift too. Total stylistic shift becomes very clean, 
there's a lot. He he loved some of the stuff that Bob Moore had done back in the 70s with die cuts and uh, little cards that would stand up and, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And John fooled around with those kinds of things. And um, But once again, terrific, terrific guy, old pal, had not... I hadn't talked to John Jensen probably in 20 years. So I sent him an email. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Sure enough, he's got cards that we didn't have from the 80s. Um, he also is pals with great Disney over the years photographer Gary Kruger. Oh, sure. And Gary Kruger, who used to do a lot of shooting for Marty at WDI, um, Gary just happened to be visiting John. John lives in Colorado now. He's retired. And Gary took a bunch of photos for us that are in the book of the sort of pop-up and standout cards that John Jensen had done. Roger Rabbit by a lamppost, that kind of stuff. So even calling on John to kind of identify and help figure out what year was what and stories behind them and so on wound up adding to the narrative of the book. Um, I'm trying to think uh, other, other great, Oh, well, Kevin Kidney, of course, who's featured in the book, who's a a pal of mine for since we were babies. (laughs) But of course, Kevin is part of that. Kevin is part of, is an example of that. Disney legacy mm-hmm. in the sense that we, the whole idea of the book ultimately became this notion of Disney and Christmas uh, being intertwined ideas. And to me, Kevin represented that a lot. And um, I, I write in the book, the traditions of Disney and the traditions of Christmas are kindred. Mm-hmm a reliance on warm feelings, the closeness of family, joyous celebration, lavish entertainment, good-hearted fun, and the passing on of beloved customs are common legacies in the holiday and the Disney culture. And that's one of the things that I've seen with Kevin Kidney and Jody Daly over the decades that they've been creating is they have an unerring instinct and ability to reach back to move forward. Yes. And so they create new things that sort of tickle your sense of memory and sort of punch you in the nostalgia gut. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kevin had done a bunch of holiday art for a home video project, and I actually had bought one at a gallery. Um, and... So I talked to Kevin and he said, oh, I have, you know, digital files of all of those. So we were able to feature a lot of his art from the home video project. The home video project was built around the old Disney Christmas show from all of us to all of you, which is where our Christmas card book title comes from, the old Disney TV special that aired at Christmas time. And so it was a great way to showcase that idea about legacy and and reaching back to move forward and also to show wonderful artwork 
that would never get seen that that uh, that Kevin uh, and Jody created. Right, and their artwork is just absolutely spectacular, and it's timeless. And well, you know what? And it's passionate, and it's informed. Yes, it's very erudite stuff. Yeah. So. And that's the great thing is it's very Disney in the sense that it appeals on this very broad, uh, appeals to this very broad audience. You know, the charm and the, and the, just the, the beauty of it appeals to everyone, but there's extra, there's extra pleasure in there for those of us who know what they're referring to or what Kevin is drawing on to, to create his artwork. It's, it's that little plus that makes everything uh, Disney quality. Sure. Well, and there's that extra level of joy that comes from people who really love what they're doing mm-hmm. and what, and they love the subject and they know the subject and it just adds so many layers to it. Well, that was another, another really fun thing too. I, I reached out to uh, Mike Peraza. Because I saw on his Facebook page uh, that he was posting some really interesting Mickey's Christmas Carol stuff that I had never seen before. Mm. And he said, oh, yeah, well, this is actually the original title card pen and ink illustration of Mickey at, at the desk. Oh, wow. I have it. Oh, wow. So he had a beautiful, you know, digital scan done, and that's the the front part of our uh, 1983 page layout. But then he also had a really nifty piece of Willie the Giant with all the other characters in his outstretched hands. And I said, what is this? And he said, oh, when this aired on TV, they wanted to do it up like a holiday special. So at every commercial break, we had a, we'll be right back. And now we return to Mickey's Christmas Carol because they were trying to fill an hour with, what is it? A 28 minute short. (laughs) Right. So he said, I did special pen and ink art in the style of the film titles for their we'll be right back cards. So I got to have some of that art um, for our Christmas card book as well. So that I think to me is, a particular joy as a, a, a fan, a historian, an author, you reach out, as you were saying, to the people whose passion is what drives them to do what they do. And they just want to come and play. Yes, absolutely. And it just becomes a game of what can you find that hasn't been seen by people and get it all out there. I, uh, one thing I thought was really interesting, you have a, this custom Christmas card that Walt sent the future Queen Elizabeth II when she was about five years old. Isn't and I that thought that nuts? was fascinating. Well, and the, uh, the um, Rockefeller cards. the uh, Yes, the Good Neighbor cards. The, the Good Neighbor cards, which is uh, very interesting. And the documentation that go with them, the fact that uh, Rockefeller commissioned uh, a, car, a Christmas card for the uh, coordinated the Office of Inter-American Affairs. So Nelson Rockefeller was leading that office uh, under the appointment of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And 
I know that your listeners are all super smart about their 1940s history, but uh, in case they aren't, but <laughs> the Office of Inter-American Affairs was a government bureau that was really set up to distribute pro-U.S. and pro-allied news and films, advertising, radio broadcasts, music, and so on, to Latin America to counter um, Italian and German propaganda down there. So uh, Rockefeller sent a, a letter to Walt asking about a, a Christmas card. And uh, we had two uh, drafts or comps Mm-hmm. And then a third design, which is the one that he chose. Then, of course, the other part of the Christmas card book is one of actually I think it was either was either Jen, the editor, or one of the salespeople, or it came up at a sales meeting. But they said, "Let's put Christmas cards in it." Right. So we have a dozen different custom created Christmas cards throughout the book that feature specific kinds of art. Um, the one, for instance, that's on the uh, page we were just talking about, the one with the Rockefeller uh, Office of Inter-American Affairs. The cards all featured Donald and a sleigh. Mm-hmm. So we had a Walt Disney Comics and Stories cover uh, from 1943 with Donald pulling his nephews in a sleigh that we used as that Christmas card. And they're in little envelopes that you can pull out and... and uh, and uh, they function as actual Christmas cards. I can't imagine people buying a $50 book and then actually sending the Christmas cards out. <laughs> no way. But we were able to, one of, the, one of the things that I discovered, this is another thing. I've been around Disney and working for Disney for more than 30 years. And like I said early on, I'm elderly, so I forget things. Um, but I was... This sounds like a made-up story. I had gotten up to the point where Christmas cards for the company sort of ceased to be in the beginning of the 21st century. There was a corporate card in 2000 that was really the last one. And then people started doing digital cards and animated email cards. And the company had gotten so big that not only was it really expensive on a corporate level, but every business unit wanted to self-identify. They wanted to send out their own message and their own identity. So I was like, oh my gosh, it's like a huge drought here. And then I, no joke, was walking in my garage past a shelf full of all sorts of odds and ends and books and things, research materials, boxes of old Disney news magazines and things like that. Mm -hmm. And there was a little glassine envelope, you know, that kind of translucent, heavy tissue-y kind of paper. Yeah. And it was filled with Christmas cards that had been done for the launch of Prep and Landing Naughty versus Nice in 2011 mm-hmm. sent out Christmas cards. That was like a promo package. And they all had a peach, a piece of custom Christmas art on them. It's actually stuff that you see in the films like uh, recruiting posters and 
things like that that are used in the backgrounds. Right, yeah. But also a couple of things that were done for these Christmas cards in 2011. And I thought, okay, that would make a great punch up instead of this depressing ramp down at the end of the 2000s. <laughs> right, yeah. So my longtime friends with Dorothy McKim at Animation, and she was the producer of the Prep and Landing shows. So I reached out to her and said, I've got these and, and uh, we want to do this. And Paul had laid out a page spread and I just wanted her to look at it and see what we were doing and make sure we got all of our information correct. Well, she went nuts. And she said, instead of that sixth poster design, card design, why don't I have Laurel both do a new piece of art? Ooh. Yeah. So the little card that comes slips in and out of the envelope on that prep and landing page was actually a custom piece of art that Lorelei did for this book. Um, once again, another one of those things that happens when you reach out to people. And, and so there's a lot of special little stuff like that. Yes. Yeah, and I, I like the, the multimedia effect that it gives of having those little envelopes with those little goodies in there. That's fun. Well, it, it just, it, it's once again, another, another bit of layering to all of it. The other thing that's really funny, and we have to, you know, pray for a new edition of the book. I was doing a book signing over at Animation. And a fellow from Animation Marketing came up and he plopped a manila envelope down in front of me and said, these are for you. And I said, well, what, what are these? And I opened it up and it was Christmas cards. He said, oh, animation has kept doing Christmas cards. We've just kind of kept it quiet. Uh, so this was about a decade's worth of cards I had never seen before that were not in the archives and that were sent out by Disney Animation. Wow. So wait for that updated second edition of the uh, Christmas card book because those bad boys are going in there. Yeah, now you've got to do it. There's always <laughs> more art. And uh, thank you so much for your time for dropping into Progress City for our Christmas uh, spectacular. Uh, we really appreciate it. Oh, I, I appreciate being invited, and I'm uh, about to avail myself of the voluminous snack table uh, oh, that you've set up. Because you know the the elves were working hard I'm on this. I'm telling one. you, it's, so. it's it's I think the flaming rum punch is what looks really good <laughs> over there. So I'm going to try that. Well, you know, you got you, you a little something for everybody, you know, take some home for the kids, you know, <laughs> and, keep everybody happy. And you know what? I, I waver about whether a chocolate fountain is passe or not, but you know, it works. It looks good. No, you know, it smells it's, good. It's, it's always in the season. <laughs> we, we have the uh, dark and uh, white running chocolate at Let's the see. same time. So, That's, you know. Hot and cold running. I love it. It works exactly. well. Exactly. All well, right, my friend. I'm, I'm happy to have been asked. And uh, anytime you want me to talk endlessly about Disney stuff, feel free. Well, that's kind of our brand. So yeah. we appreciate it. And we hope Excellent. you and your family have a very happy holiday season. Same to you. Bye.
must all of you a very merry Christmas. For on this bright and joyful night, we're glad to have you with us. So gather round the lovely tree where all the lights are shining. You'll see how happy we will be while all the bells are chiming. Ding dong dingle. What a merry sound, ding dong dingle, Kris Kringle is in town. From all of us to all of you, it's good to have you with us. Now here we go, and here's our show that says a merry Christmas, a very merry Christmas. You know, one of my favorite things about Christmas is all the great movies and TV shows from years past that have become traditions. Uh, Jeff, do you have anything that you absolutely have to watch during the holidays? Uh, now the must watch every year for the past, I don't know, 10 years has been at Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. That's, oh, that is a great standard. call. That yeah. is a great one. Yeah, the past couple of years, you and I both discovered this movie it happened on fifth avenue and it's become kind of a standard for me as well i yeah that was a movie i had never heard of until it popped up on tcm like i had never even heard of it much less seen it and uh like victor moore as this uh 19 i guess it's 1940s ho yeah because it's after the war hobo in new york that uh breaks into <laughs> mansions every Christmas and kind of sets himself up in people's mansions while they're out of town and wackiness ensues. It's got Charlie Ruggles of Parent Trap and Doc yes. Pruitt from Ugly Dachshund as the billionaire whose house he's living in. And uh, that is a very wacky one. I'd recommend people check that one out. Well, what about you, Michael? Do you have anything that's a yearly, yearly thing? There are a lot. I mean, you get the, the classics that you grow up seeing it's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas, things like that. But uh, thankfully, the TCM era has introduced so many more. I'm a big fan of Christmas in Connecticut. Oh, yes. With Barbara Stanwyck. That's a funny one. And um, gosh, I, you know, it's, it's hard to beat like White Christmas. So Holiday Affair with Robert Mitchum and Janet Lee That's is a great, great one. one too. Yeah. And, you know, there are some great modern. Well, I mean, Elf. Gotta love Elf. Can't go wrong with Elf. So uh, there, there are a lot from th throughout the years. But Emmett Otter, you're, you mentioned Emmett Otter. And I, I know a lot of people online would uh, mention A Muppet Family Christmas as well as, yes. a, as oh, a TV yes. classic. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff from that era. And, and the Hensons, they, you know, Muppet Christmas Carol is really excellent. Muppet Christmas Carol is excellent. Mickey's Christmas Carol is excellent. Oh, yes. Yes. So there's a lot out there. You know, we... We didn't mention too many Disney Christmas films because there aren't that many. There are some shorts. But, uh, you know, I bet we can find some wintry fun on Disney Plus to watch. Yeah, I mean, they've got some, like you said, there's some there's some newer stuff, some some older stuff. I, you know, I don't know quite what to uh, what to put on here for, for a party. I know. I was, I was thinking we can have we're having people over for the party. Maybe we can have a big screening after the party. You know, one of the good things about Progress City during the Christmas season is seeing all the holiday comings and goings in the community. And, you know, everyone gets into the spirit. Well, yeah. And one of the great things about having these 
this radial city is that you can kind of put a big projector in the middle of all these homes and everybody can kind of look through their back doors, especially in this time where we're socially distanced and, and see the projection of the movie. So it's, it's perfect. Exactly. Everybody's out and about. Ah, for it, well, there you go. There goes our wacky neighbor Jay and his new snowmobile. He sure loves that horn. I hear it. It has an electric starter. Now he doesn't even have to crank. Yeah, I just, uh, man, I hope he stays away from that icy patch. Ooh. Oh, man. That, that topiary is never going to be the same. It looks like he's coming this way. Hey. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Look, it's it's Jay from next door. Come on in, neighbor. Hey, guys. How, how's it going? Good. Welcome. Merry Christmas. How's it going? Uh, it's great outside. It's snowy and the air is crisp, and I'm I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, great. To get that snow off you. Those snowmobiles can be tricky. They can be because I've never driven one before, so this was a first for me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, uh, well, that's fitting. You know, we're brewing up some uh, cocoa. Do you like anything in yours or just take it straight up? Just some marshmallows would be great. That would be pretty nice. All right. Yeah. Well, it's good for what ails you. All right. Yeah. Well, we're glad you dropped by because we were sitting here trying to think of pulling up something on the old Disney Plus to watch. And uh, we were freezing up, so to speak. So uh, we were wondering if you had any good wintry suggestions for quality programming. Oh, yeah, for sure. So we can, I think we should start with a couple shorts and then maybe we can do a feature presentation if you'd like. Oh, that sounds great. Okay, so Perfect. I was thinking maybe we could do Pluto's Christmas Tree, then uh, yes. follow it up with uh, Once Upon a Winter Time, and then our uh, feature can be Snowball Express. Well, that sounds, that's <laughs> perfect. What do you think, Jeff? Uh, I think that sounds excellent. Very excellent. All right. Well, start off with, I mean, Pluto's Christmas Tree is a classic. This is a, a 1952 short, uh, a Jack Hanna short who did. Didn't he do like most of the Chippendale stuff? He, he did a lot of Chippendale and a lot of Pluto shorts too. I mean, he was really, I think a lot of that physical comedy and those sort of mimed gags are kind of right up his, right up his alley. At least it would seem after watching a lot of them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so this is a funny one. This is a, this is a rare like combo because it's Mickey and Pluto and Chippendale. Right. Yeah, it's not something you see very often. It's special just for the holidays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, what happened, the setup for this is uh, Mickey's out to uh, cut down a tree, Christmas tree with Pluto. And he gets the tree with Chip and Dale inside. And uh, wackiness ensues, I guess you could say. I think what's one of the coolest things about this short is even before it begins, it's one of the few shorts that I can think of that has animated title cards, which are really pretty because it's got, um, you know, that candles flickering and then there's that sparkle inside the letters, yes. which is really cool. Yeah. yeah. When you think about it, there aren't many title cards that, you know, where they really kind of want that extra mile with them. I, and I think this one, Trick or Treat, obviously, with Donald Duck, uh, which was just, we'd all just watched a month or two ago. Uh, that one also has custom title cards, but Pluto's Christmas tree with that candle and that flicker and those those um, illuminated letters, it's so pretty. It kind of almost like that sparkle that snow has in the sky, and it's kind of encapsulated um, in those letters. It's beautiful. It's great. 
Yeah, and then that Christmas card kind of comes to life and it goes inside of it. That's really cool too, how their snow is just really beautiful. Yeah, I think the other thing about it, like you said, Michael, that you know hilarity ensues. I think one of the cool things about the short is that if you go back and read, you know, Joe Grant talked about how they did shorts and how they would come up with a story premise and then they would hang all these gags off of it until they did like, you know, the big gag at the end for the big wrap up. And this short is exactly that. The premise is like, couldn't be simpler. It's like Mickey gets a tree, Chippendale are in it. He brings it in the house, press play. <laughs> yeah. And then it's just, and then just Pluto comes in and it's just off to the races. So many good jokes in there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, the thing that struck me, uh, you know, last time I saw this was that title card. Like you said, I mean, the title card, every now and again, you see something that's like, you wish like you could pick up at auction. <laughs> it's like something you're like, man, I would hang that on the wall. And this title card, man, it's so great. I don't even know how they do that effect with the letters, but just the art, the background art itself is amazing. Yeah, it's really good. And then the background art, speaking of in the short is was painted by uh, Thelma Whitmer, who is um, someone I've been accused of uh, kind of having a bit, a bit of a crush on um, her background. It's true. Her backgrounds, I, I've seen enough of them now where I can pretty much spot them out um, in the shorts. Uh, but those beautiful backgrounds where Chippendale are inside the Christmas tree and there's sort of that luminosity to them with the colored lighting and the pine needles and the tree branches and the ornaments, all of that is uh, Thelma Whitmer. And I think she's she's one of those um, women that work for the studio that I think probably doesn't get mentioned enough. You know, we know all the big names, but um, if you look at the movie credits, Thelma Whitmer's on a lot of them, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, a lot of the shorts. And I think this one to me is like, this is her best work ever. It's just incredible. Those scenes inside the tree are so cool. And also that scene where Dale is just walking down the uh, tree is one of my favorite shots of all time. Well, you know what that shot always reminds me of is like like going out for a stroll and just looking at Christmas lights. Yeah. And that's what he's doing. He's like, hey, let's yeah. just go for a stroll and take in the season. Except he's in a tree. Hands behind his back. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I love how he's so enthusiastic about it. Like he just does this kind of like little saunter uh, <laughs> down the down the limb. But yeah, I you know I I thought that the the backgrounds the backgrounds in this are the real star. Like everything else is great, but the the stuff within the tree is just incredible. Even her stuff outside, like the cedar trees and everything, it's all really like atmospheric. But but that stuff inside the Christmas tree is just. You want to crawl inside the TV. And I think what else is really cool about this short is you're starting to see, not, not to get super nerdy, but you're, you're starting to see Mickey's model start to change a little bit. Yeah. And it's starting to tweak itself where you can start to see like this, this short's kind of like the midway point to where his model character model gets in simple things where it's like, he's yeah. almost there with kind of like this pulled snout. And um, it's just really great. It's, it's just, you, you can't beat it. I mean, um, and Pluto just like, it's so funny. His character, he just, he just falls for everything, you know, like every little prompt or every little poke from Chippendale and he's just in it 110%. It's incredible. Yeah. He's it's, it's uh, poor put upon Pluto because he knows they're in the tree and Mickey, Mickey thinks he's just like going crazy. And I have to say, uh, 
even as an adult, like peril to Christmas ornaments still makes me super nervous. Like when they're like throwing like the glass balls back and forth, it's still, it's kind of unnerving. Oh my God. As a kid, glass ornaments scared me to death. And then watching this short, I was like, yeah, see, that's what happens if you're not careful. Exactly. That's right. That's right. It was like, it was like part entertainment, part safety film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, you're right about this is like a fun mid-century Mickey. And I, you know, I don't know who the animators on this. It was George Kreisel, uh, Fred Moore, Bill Justice, and Volus Jones. I guess Fred Moore probably did Mickey, I would guess, maybe. Well, it's funny. It's hard to say because, you know, Bill Justice had his own style too, you know? Yeah. And Bill, you know, you can spot a Bill Justice character, especially the ones that he did in the parks, you know? You can spot a Bill Justice character design. It might have just been some interesting hybrid that they worked out. But you've got two two people on that team that are known for um, their characterization that's a slightly different, you know, slightly what you would consider to be on model for Disney characters. So who knows? It it, it could very well have been Freddie Moore, without a doubt. Yeah, I just thought it was funny because Mickey's kind of got a belly shirt on, mm-hmm. like you can see his like midriff a lot. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And then I had that one scene where um, Dale's pretending to be the the Santa candle. Yes. And he's just let, sitting there so upright. And he, when Mickey lights his head on fire. So good. It's so good. That to me is like one of the biggest laughs in the entire short is his like posture. The way he like takes the shape of the Santa candles with his body is so funny to me. Yeah. I mean, that's. Yeah, I just can't. It's just, it's too much to even think about. Because he's like, oh, you want me to light the candles? <laughs> it's like, they telegraph the joke, and then there's like the suspense, like, oh my God, is he going to light them? <laughs> yeah. And then he lights them, and well, he tries, and like, uh, Chip blows it out, or Dale blows it out, and then uh, he's, he, he picks them up. I like how he picks them up, and then light, lights them off of another candle. And sets him back down. Very efficient. Yeah, very, very. I just wondered. Mickey had a uh, a lot of presents out. He w- he was really uh, stacking them up there. I know it's a treat to be jealous of for sure. Yeah, it's a really nice treat. <laughs> and of course, everything wraps up. I, I mean, it's. I, I don't think it's a shock to say everything works out well in the end. Although they kind of trash their Christmas tree. But I love how excited Mickey is that, uh, that Chip and Dale are in the tree at the end. That they're and they're so cute. Like up on the top, like limb, kind of cowering. They're super cute. I, I think the, the coolest thing about this short is because it's a Christmas short, right? So the ending is just so sweet. Like you said, like when the carolers show up with, with Donald and, and Minnie and Goofy. And, and it, it just kind of ends with this really sweet ending. But then, you know, they got to put the button on it and uh, they slap the sticker. Don't open till Christmas. Yeah, on Pluto because he can't sing. <laughs> yeah, because he can't sing. So, like, even though it's super sweet, they still get a really good laugh at the end, which I think is really nice and, and really appropriate for Christmas. I mean, it's yeah. really it's really touching. Yeah, got to love that button. Also, I, I really love the models and the animation. You just get a brief snippet of uh, Goofy on his bass, which I like. And yes. uh, Donald and Minnie all doing their caroling, singing uh, Deck the Halls. And I, I love that little scene. That's such a fun little scene. It is. It's super adorable. It's just it's just the right way to end it. I mean, it's just it's really great. I think, I think what's really interesting about this short, too, is that they made a golden book of it. But the golden book is 
is uh, Donald Duck's Christmas tree. Huh. And it's the same exact story, except they yanked uh, Mickey and put Donald Duck in. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's really fun. If you find it, it's got like a yellow cover. But it's it's the same story, but they just decided to put Donald in um, instead of Mickey Mouse. So it's kind of interesting. So like your statement earlier about it's weird to see Mickey in a Chippendale short. The Golden Book was kind of like more what you would have expected it to be um, if it was an animated short. Yeah, I totally, I can totally see that. That's great. Well, uh, so that's our first short. Our second short, you brought us Once Upon a Winter Time from uh, Melody Time, 1948. Uh, this one's directed by Ham Lusk. And uh, it, I thought it was interesting. I, I, I looked it up just now. It has a story by Art Scott and Mary Blair. Mary Blair with a story credit. Yeah, uh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. This one, you talk about sweet and sort of, um, I mean, it's literally, but also somewhat figuratively, like the romance of the season. So, so beautiful and so poetic. Yeah, I, this is probably one of the few shorts, you know, you can't get more Mary Blair um, than this one is. I mean, you can look at Johnny Appleseed or uh, Ichabod Crane, all very heavily influenced by Mary Blair. But this one those backgrounds with those trees that all kind of morph together into one shape with this sweeping line across the sky is just, just beautiful. Really incredible. Yeah. Those trees. I mean, it's two things to meet the trees and the horses. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. The horses necks are incredible. They almost like a little bit further and you would have been like, why are they have giraffes hooked up to their sleigh? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally. But yeah, speaking of golden books, it just feels like this and Johnny Appleseed are, are both just straight from a golden book that Mary Blair illustrated. I mean, it's like an animated golden book. The golden book for Once Upon a Winter Time, which is kind of one of those holy grail ones, um, was actually illustrated by Tom Oreb, who was the character designer for this short. Hmm. So Tom designed all of the human characters and the animals, like the bunnies and I love the squirrels, too, that kind of curl up around on the skis of the sleigh. Yeah. But um, Tom Oreb actually illustrated. It's the only golden book he ever illustrated, too. But he illustrated the Once Upon a Wintertime one. Interesting. It kills me how they would have just these, like, absolutely incredible artists do the golden books, too. Yeah, the old golden books are are literally a treasure trove of some of the best studio artists that Disney had mm -hmm. doing these books. I mean, they're just really, really amazing. Uh, this one was pretty cool. What's weird about it is not all the artwork is in full color. A lot of them are tone on tone with like a little hit of color. There's a couple full color pages, but um, really pretty book. And um, I think what's cool about Tom Oreb is most people, if they do know him, they know him from his character design in Sleeping Beauty with the really kind of angular characters and you know you think of aurora's hair with those uh cinnamon bun curls and you mm. think of all of the rabbits with kind of the pointy faces and things you can kind of see once upon a winter time is kind of this really interesting step between like an animal that you would see in bambi and a sleeping beauty uh forest critter and mm. once upon a winter time is kind of this interesting moment where they're starting to morph these shapes <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to get nerdy about it, but just look at it. Look at the rabbits and look at the squirrels and stuff. They're really beautiful and very deceptively simple. Yeah. 
there's a moment when the squirrels kind of peek out from above. They're coming through on their horse over covered bridge, and the squirrels peek out. And it reminded me so strongly of the old, uh, the critters that were on, like, the backdrop for Snow White's Scary Adventure. Like, these little, like, <laughs> just shapes kind of peeking out. You know? Yeah, 100%. Well, I would be remiss to uh, mention the fact that any movie that begins with our friend, the magic paintbrush, is a good one. Yes, 100%. And this one's painting in frost. Yes, even better. And I think what's really neat about this movie, too, is it's really pretty, but then it gets pretty action-packed in there. You know, it, it's good juxtaposition. It's very sweet. And, um, you know, they're doing this ballet on their ice skates. And then and then the uh, tension rises pretty quickly on it. <laughs> it gets yeah. It's pretty tense. One thing I love that they do is how they use, they use color in this more than anything else I can think of to convey like emotional changes. Like uh, when she gets mad, everything goes red and then everyone turns like ice cold blue. And uh, there's uh, all sorts of like crazy palette shifts. Like they go past the danger sign for the broken ice and it comes up in the camera and like flashes like green and red. It's really nuts. Yeah, there's a couple scenes where they basically flash the whole screen with color. And it's really amazing because it, it goes so fast that you you kind of read it emotionally if you're not really paying attention, which is kind of the whole point. And it's pretty wild. I mean, you see colors like that in um, like Sources Apprentice, like when he's hacking apart the other broom. And there's those big right. flashes of color. You'll see it in Alice in Wonderland, like when they're in a the maze and it's all black and white. And you you don't even really notice it until someone points it out to you. And then you can't like not see it. And I think this is the same kind of color design that's really impressive and kind of risky. You know, it's kind of a bold, bold move and it works. Yeah. It's funny. Some of this did remind me of Alice in Wonderland a little bit. I mean, obviously Mary Blair as well in that. But the colors as well, just being super bold with them. Yeah, it's cool. And then the sound, one of my favorite parts is when that ice is cracking. It's like, that sound that it makes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really funny. I noticed that, too, because I can I can hear that in my head, the sound that it makes. It's such like a tension filled moment, but it's also played for comedy. It's funny. But, uh, you know, talking about color, there's a moment when the the male bunny kind of dips his tail in the water accidentally and he turns blue, which is, you know, standard, but he also shivers in this crazy way where like his entire outside line turns into like a sine wave and he's just like (laughs) rippling. It's really crazy. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot going on in here to enjoy. And it's one of those things where, you know, you should watch it and enjoy it and it's great. And then, then one time when you watch it, just pay attention to one thing, like just watch one character or just watch the backgrounds or just listen to the sound. And you'll find that it's really a complicated short. I mean, every single thing has been dialed in and orchestrated in a way that maybe you don't see in, in other Disney shorts or, or um, in a way that you might only see in a feature length film. It's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I feel like people dismiss the package films, but this movie is incredible. It's always been one of my favorites of my adult life. Just Johnny Appleseed Pegasus build, the trees, this. I mean, it's incredible. Blame it on the stuff. Song. Yeah, of course. 
I think what's interesting about the package films is you're right. A lot of people, um, you know, they don't think of them in the same way that they think of the other features. But I think if you look at them as like these really artistic um, experimental films, which is what a lot of them are, then you really see like, whoa, there's a lot going on under the hood on these things. And I mean, I think they're all, I think they're all amazing. I mean, without a doubt, all the ones you just named are perfect. There, there's nothing better. Yeah. Oh, and it let them do like crazy stuff that they wouldn't get to do otherwise, like cut loose a little, like we see in this. And uh, like you said, there's so much going on. Like the, the people and the rabbits, there's a rabbit couple and a people couple and the rabbits have a whole like separate, like parallel plot line, but like whole different gags. Like there's this funny part where they both go like kind of backside first into the snow and their backsides make little heart shapes in the snow. That's so funny <laughs> to me. It's so perfect. Like you just can't, it just, it's just so perfect that moment. And in the end, the squirrels are the heroes. The squirrels are the ones that uh, save everybody in the end. Oh, yeah. They're all, they're very industrious animals. So, yeah, it's true. And you get the, <laughs> the snuzzle sort of melting snow gag is always golden. Yeah. Yeah. And they save it till the end. Save it till the end. That's good stuff. All right. Well, you know, with, with those two, those two in the can lined up ready to go, you really need a masterpiece to pull it off. And you've got one. Yes, Snowball Express from 1972. <laughs> yeah, a Ron Miller, a Ron Miller production. Ron Miller, uh, directed by Norman Tokar, who did a lot of oh, uh, yeah. Disney screwball comedies. Boat Nicks. It's it is my favorite uh, live action Disney film. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, someone texted me uh, and they said, "Wait, this is your favorite live action?" Because they just watched it for the first time. And uh, I don't know what it is. I think I saw it at the right moment. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I saw it. I was probably eight years old. And it was at um, Fort Wilderness, Movie Under the Stars. Oh, man. Um, yeah, we didn't have Disney Channel when we were kids. So movies like this, there would be no other way for me to see them, you know? And, and I didn't know what it was. And, you know, we were on vacation. So every moment is like the best moment ever. And there was a lot of anticipation to go see a movie under the stars that night. That's and nice. this is the one they played. And it was like everything I could have ever want. As a kid growing up um, in the North, I love winter. I love snow. This was a movie that fully embraced that about um, these people just kind of like gave up where they were to go live on a mountain in the snow. It's like, what, yeah. what could be anything better? Um, and it was funny. And then they get to the hotel and I'm like, Oh my God, I want to live in that hotel too. It was just, it was too many things. It, it pressed too many buttons for me. So. Yeah. I, I, I say that there, there are like a couple of threads in this that like, we never saw it. I, and I don't know how we, I've told Jeff, I don't know how we missed it. Cause it's got like everything in it. It's got everybody in it. That's the thing. Yeah. It has everybody from all the movies we watched all in one movie. It's incredible. Yeah, I don't know how, like, I remember seeing, like, the clamshell VHS in the video store. I don't know why we never went for it, because, I mean, Dean Jones, I mean, we've talked about this offline. Dean Jones is, was like, him and Harrison Ford were, like, the icons of my youth. It seems so weird. <laughs> yes, yes. But Dean Jones was, like, an icon. Yeah, he was in everything, and um, I think this is, this is one of his best for sure. 
Yeah, well, this is a funny one. It combines a couple of threads that, aside from everybody in it, I mean, it's got uh, Dean Jones, like I said, it's got Keenan Wynn as the bad guy, got Nancy Olson, got George Goober Lindsay, got Harry Morgan, got a whole, sl it's like all the people from the Medfield movies, plus like Dean Jones. And uh, it's got like Kurt Russell's buddy from uh, Computer War Tennis Shoes. Yep, Michael McGreevy. Yeah. It's Wally. Dick Van Patten. I mean, Dick Van Patten is in a brief role as, as the jerk yeah. boss. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I just, it's just, it's funny, and the, I think, you know, I look at this movie, and it's just, it's really silly. You know, if you watch it, like the jokes are really good. Like the dialogue is really snappy. There's a lot of like quick reads, quick camera cuts. Um, it's really fun. I know some people think it's slow, but I think it's. What's really interesting about it is like, you know, the bad guy is is bad, but he's not like really bad. He's just, you know, he's more scrupulous than than anything. And and a lot of the characters is really nice people. Like the banker that he goes to get the the first loan from from Crystal yeah. Hills is like a really nice guy. He's like super positive and Yeah, just like kind of like expansive, kind of jovial guy. Yeah, it's like it's just really interesting. And um yeah, there's another thing as a kid, you know, we had raccoons as pets when we were a kid, which is really weird. And there were raccoons in this movie. And I was like, oh, my God, of course. You know, like, yeah, this house just keeps getting better. They found raccoons in it and they had a big dog. And um, it was just I'm not really sure, but it just as a kid, I just felt like, OK, that's the world I, I would want to live in. And I think oh, yeah. and it felt achievable. Right. Right. Definitely. It, it had that vibe of a, a movie that we watched all the time. When we were up, Herbie rides again, where they're in that uh, old fire station, that kind of Victorian old wood, yep. uh, kind of cool old stuff in there. That's what the hotel reminded me of that same kind of set. Well, you talk about Victorian. I mean, the set, and now I'm going to really nerd out, but the set design of that hotel is amazing. It's like right off of main street. I mean, it is yeah. like when you, if you watch the movie, just watch those, just look at those sets with all those spandrels and that millwork and that grand Imperial stained glass sign that's on the yes. side lights by the door is amazing. It's, I mean, there's some really like amazing millwork and carpentry in those sets. And I know it sounds like a really kind of like, that's a really nerdy thing to like geek out on when you watch it, but it's, it's beautiful what they built in that hotel. It's, it's like the real deal. No, it goes the extra mile. I like, I, you know, every time I see it, I think, well, first I, I wish, I hope the archives has that cut glass window of the hotel, of the hotel's name, because it's, it's a beautiful window. But, uh, I also think that, you know, if I were designing my like, fictional ultra nerd like disney resort you'd have this as one of the hotels then the hotel from blackbeard's ghost is one of the other hotels and it would just be the iconic obscure <laughs> hotels of disney history <laughs> that would be amazing i mean i just think there's this really um i don't know they just nailed it and i think the other the other thing about the movie that's really amazing that i don't think it really gets enough credit for too is the soundtrack um you know oh, yeah. composed by Richard Brunner um, is probably a name not a lot of people have heard of, but that music, it's as good as George Bruns or Sherman's or anybody. I mean, that opening 
opening shot with New York with that really kind of sweeping, you know, I'm always like, this is New York. Like it feels like a travel log yeah. moment, you know, and then it goes into like that kind of like really kind of funky country thing when they're pulling in the Silver Hill. And then it feels really just fun, playful, um, kind of loungy tracks when they're doing all the skiing. It's just the music's amazing. And I've always, I was so disappointed to find out that there wasn't a soundtrack released for this movie. And I've often thought like, well, maybe I can make my own if I, if I don't mind listening to, you know, <laughs> Dean Jones yell track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. That, I mean, that, that, that music during that sequence is great. It is really so good. Yeah. The music's incredible. It's, it really, it's, it's definitely one of the highlights of the film for sure. Yeah. I, uh, the skiing thing makes me think of, um, you know, I, one of the things that strikes me when I watch this is how much cartoon logic it uses, which is unusual really in some live action films. Like it really does use cartoon logic. Like when he's going down the nightmare alley, uh, at the ski resort and winds up and hits that tree, they do the shot where like the skis have gone around the tree. So you're like, well, what happened to him? And then he's behind the tree. And it's just like a Donald Duck cartoon. Yeah, it's incredible. That whole scene is great. I love when he wipes out. And then like that really cool guy comes up with like those glasses and that puffer jacket. And he's like, hey, come on. No, you just got to get back up and just keep going and pushes yeah. him down the hill. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, everyone's so earnest and helpful, you know. There are some fun extras in this movie, uh, like especially on the ski slopes. Uh, there's a scene where there's a thrilling rescue on a cliff that appears out of nowhere. And like the guys that are like clapping him on the back are, I'm just like, are these like Ron Miller's buddies, like ski buddies that they just called up or something where <laughs> they're just like, yeah, man, that was awesome. Yeah. I think, you know, they filmed it on location in Vail. And I'm wondering if those are just extras. Like those are like legit, like ski dudes. Yeah. I mean, they got the glasses on and the cool hats. I mean, they all look like, they might know Steve McQueen. I mean, they're all yeah. like like that kind of roguish kind of guys. And yeah, those guys are awesome. And then even that scene, you talk about extras when they pull in the Silver Hill to get directions. And there's that that banter back and forth where they're like completing each other's sentences. And then the, you think the scene's over. And then that old man leans yes. in the window and goes, you know, crazy Jake. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite moment in the whole movie i love that guy yeah it's like that was an oscar winning performance right there he sold it <laughs> he just like kind of slowly creeps into frame because it, it makes you wonder like wow if that guy if that guy if crazy jake is normal to that like how crazy is crazy jake yeah exactly. that guy seems pretty crazy <laughs> exactly which, I mean, speaking of crazy, Harry Morgan, it's one of his finest performances of many fine performances. Uh, he really puts it on in this movie. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. And some of the lines he uses and some of the phrases are just unbelievable. But one of my favorite moments is when that, um, that gentleman comes up to him that's had a few too many drinks. And he's like, there's a goldfish in my drink. And he's like, shh quiet or everyone will want one and that guy's face <laughs> lights up like oh i mean it's yeah. just talk about another great extra wow i just love that he's like uh like he's like an almost like an old 49er kind of prospector guy but then they put him as bellhop and then they have him in that uniform 
It's yes, like the ultimate yes. like monkey suit. You like you want to say monkey suit. That is the because he is in that uniform and it's amazing. I think it's great when he picks up like those couples, their little bags, and he goes, "Well, what about these?" And he's like, "You can't leave them in the lobby." And just yeah, starts going up the stairs. Yeah. I also like all of his implied past because he's always talking about, oh, you know, like the Henderson sisters back. That was 23 years ago. And uh, there's a lot of implied past for his character. Yeah, it's really it's he's great. You're right. He's definitely, definitely great. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, there are a lot of great moments. I I think of like the cartoon again with the cartoon logic. I love when uh, Wally blows up the stump. And it flies up in the air and then comes back down. It, that is such a cartoon yes. gag. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And it lands right back where it was. And, so uh, can I tell you my Wally theory? Yeah. Please. So, um, you know, this came to me a couple of years ago. I was, <laughs> I was watching the movie and I was just like, oh, my God, I know who Wally is. And I just thought of was thinking of, you know, the Medfield cinematic universe and Michael McGreevy is also in those films as uh, Shiler. Mm. And they're both kind of tinkerers. They're both kind of experimenters. They're both very positive. They both kind of get in over their head. And I thought, oh, my God, this is Parent Trap. These guys are twin brothers. <laughs> it's like That's canon now. I yeah. was like, Wally and Shiler have been twin brothers that have been separated and they haven't met each other yet. So that's that's the picture that I paint now when I watch this movie. Because it's like you could totally see the two of them hanging out. And one of them just happened to make it to college. And, and Wally's stuck in Silver Hill. Stuck working with Double L at the garage. Yeah. That's great. Where they meet. Yeah. And trade places. Even better. It would be awesome. Well, you, you know, you mentioned this. And, uh, like, this is a rare... Kind of, it feels very rare in that it was filmed on location. It was filmed in Crested Butte, Colorado, which I looked up online. Let me tell you, Crested Butte's booming these days. Oh yeah, um, it's right. He was right. He was yeah. He was right all along. You can see that the Grand Imperial really kicked off something special. But it's so cool to see them like shooting up on this mountain, like Dean Jones and everybody. Like they were really there on location in the snow, and it makes a big difference. Yeah, all those shots. I mean, you can't. I mean, you can have Peter Ellenshaw paint his heart out, but you you're never going to get those sweeping landscape shots. Which is also one of my other um, regrets is that, to my knowledge, this film is only available in four by three. Like, I don't yeah. know what what the traditional aspect ratio of it was, um, but I just wish the screen when they're up on that hill just just a little wider for me for this snowmobile race. Just yeah. It's get a you know, it's pretty fun. One other crazy snowball express theory that I have that also dawned on me in a recent viewing, and I was you know I've always kind of thought like, what is it about this movie that I loved so much as a kid and I still love it today? And and um, at the end, you know, they're all on the skis, and the daughter says something, and I can't remember the exact line, but it was kind of one of those like, ah, oh, dad, like one of those lines. And I thought to myself, God, she sounds just like the daughter from Carousel of Progress. And then it just went yeah. off in my head like fireworks. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the Carousel of Progress family. But on a ski slope. <laughs> I'm like, this is it. That Dean Jones's father 
Yeah. Nancy Olsen could totally be the mom. Oh, yeah. No question. Dean Jones is a goof, just kind of like how father is in Carousel Progress. Uh-huh. You've got the daughter who's exactly like the daughter in Carousel Progress. And then and then the kid who's, you know, kind of whip smart, you know, goes along with the show. But he's, you know, he's got he got his own thing going on. And I just thought to myself, like, subconsciously as a kid, I love Carousel Progress. And I just thought, is did I like latch onto that subconsciously that this was almost that same exact family which is in a completely different setting and a, with a completely different story. It's pretty That's wild. Perfect. Yeah, next time you watch it, just start, well, you'll, now, you'll see it. You'll see it. <laughs> and they've got the dog too. But no, no, that daughter, you're right. That daughter is so similar. Yeah. Yeah. When she said, oh, dad, I was like, oh, that's funny. She sounds like, I'm like, oh my God, they're the Carousel Progress family. And I'm crazy. just going to picture a father going down, careening down the uh, slopes with his arms up in the air like, Dean Jones had, which was so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. The posture that he assumed when he was in peril. Always those arms straight up in the air. Yeah, and he's got the sweater for it and everything. That's right. That's oh, right. man, that sweater. Yeah, special shout out to Dean Jones' sweater in this. To his little reindeer sweater or whatever. With the leaping deer? With the leaping deer, yeah. It's perfect. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a... Uh... It's a, a precursor to the action that he will soon have going down the ski slopes and darting through the woods. Yeah, totally. Totally. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned one thing that, you know, I hadn't really thought about, but is actually a really good point of this movie that other movies, lesser movie would have gone another way. And that is like, you mentioned how smart like his son is and like the sons of this era in movies were often just like total jerks, like real brats. And his son is really cool. Yeah, I think I think what's interesting in this movie is like, with the exception of of Keenan, you know, playing the bad guy, uh, everybody's really cool. Everybody's really cool in this movie. There's no one has got um, everyone's really positive and they're really upbeat, Um, even when um, like when they go to double L to see if they can borrow his equipment to move the donkey engine. Even that scene when when the family leaves, you know, Double L looks up and he's like, you can tell he's like, oh, I wish I could really help him, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just this really nice moment that it sounds silly and it's so minor, but it kind of redeems him. Like you, you like you understand the hardship that he's under. Then I mean, now I just got really deep on this, but, <laughs> but you get it. I mean, it's 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 great. And and then special special recognition too to the woman who plays um, Keenan's. Uh, uh, administrative assistant. I was just going to say that. Wall. She yes. is amazing. If you, those scenes, just watch her face, the amount of emotion and acting she does. She makes these faces that my grandmother used to make all the time. <laughs> and it's incredible. She is so good. She's such a good character actor. You know, that's uh, Mary Wicks who was in a ton of stuff. And she was one of the uh, gargoyles in Hunchback of Notre Dame. For real? I had no idea. Yeah, she's like the lady uh, lady gargoyle in that. And uh, she's trying to, And she's another character who, like, she basically saves their bacon at the end by, like, blowing the lid on the whole thing. Yep. She She's it, man. She's so great. I just, I love watching, just watching. In those scenes, I just watch her. She's so funny. A lot of these old Disney films had like the best character actors anywhere, especially the Medfield ones, just the best character actors. And she's at the top of the list. No question. Yeah. We, I mean, I think that's why I love the movies of this era so much is because it's like an old, 
like old studio. It's the last of the old studio system where you've got like a stock company right. of people, and they just get the mm-hmm. best, uh, the best faces, the best like crazy people to do all these things. Yeah, yeah, and I just I think there's also sort of this. There's we, I was talking to a friend about this a couple of weeks ago, but there's like the, there's like this interesting delivery where it is slapstick, but it's believable. Like the actors are totally selling it. Like it doesn't come off is cheesy it's like it's somehow tongue-in-cheek yet real I, I don't even know how to explain it because i'm not an actor but it just totally works and it's so it's so delightful if you just if you just go with it it's yeah. really fun i think that's the key to a movie like this is you just you just have to sit down and just go with it like just let it just let it go and you'll laugh and you'll have a good time with it for sure all right well you can't you can't beat that um and like you said, there's a lot, uh, you know, all these gags really pays off, I think, with a lot of um, location work. And a lot of this movie had to have more stunt work than probably any other Disney movie because there are a lot of real shenanigans going on out there. Oh, without a doubt, especially that snowmobile race at the end. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Jeff, any any other thoughts about uh, this this wintry tale? I tell you, there's a great uh, tie-in to Once Upon a Winter Time when they uh, get the derailed train or the uh, snowed-in avalanche train, I should say, uh, and then they get the sleighs to come get them, deliver them back to the hotel. It all ties everything neatly together. Yeah. There, that's it's a, very winch. There's a fun like scene. '70s sultry lady. Uh, oh gosh, yeah, yeah. She's like a she's, she's like a stand-in for Jill St. John. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. She's got those like Lana Wood cheekbones from Diamonds Are Forever. Naomi. Yeah. And there's a fun matte painting of the train, too. That was really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so much. I wonder how much of this was inspired by uh, the work they were trying to do getting Mineral King going. If they were just like, I've got an idea. I thought about that, too. Yeah. There's a lot of people at Disney learning about ski mountains and stuff. Yeah, it made me want to play for them to make like a ski lodge management simulator game based on this movie. I love, I love movies about like fixing stuff up, and I think that would be a fil- really fun game to like get the Grand Imperial and fix it up. Like that'd be a great little mobile game or something. Yeah, and I think there's uh, when you clear a level is when you get to fire up the cheese fondue. That's, that's like, <laughs> when he's gonna get the skiers. It's like I love that they call that out. Fire up the cheese fondue, and I'm like, yes, I'll, I'm right there. That is like the, perhaps the most like. Uh, quintessential moment of the movie like placing this in a time and place and uh, that kills me every time i'm like yes that is sign me up man i'm in (laughs) and the other thing you don't think about with a movie like this but some of the like you mentioned the stump shot where they fire the stump out of the ground and it lands some of the shots in this film are staged so well and i think one of the best ones is that shot at the end when he's coming down main street and he's got the horse pulling the snowmobile. And as the camera kind of pulls back into frame, you start to see, you know, Nancy Olson's hitchhiker thumb and the red mitten. And uh-huh. there's that reveal to her waiting there for him. It's just, it's such a great moment. I know it's so cheesy, but I'm kind of cheesy. But um, it's, there's a lot of scenes like that where you're like, whoa, that was a really good, that was, that was framed like perfectly to sell that point it's such a good shot and it it just really it's really sweet it's really nice 
Well, you've, you've given us a lot to watch, so I mean, I think the only thing now to do is to uh, warm up the projector and get going. I, I think we may have some uh, cheese fondue ready to go, so uh, let's uh, let's get going and uh, let's, wa let's watch some of these. Puppies. Yeah, get your cheese fondue and grab some raccoons and you'll be all set. <laughs> yeah, I get this boiler going again. Yeah, that's true. You got to get the boiler going before you make the fondue. But uh, yeah, pour a hot buttered rum and uh, get the uh, raccoons out of the oven. We'll be ready to go. Absolutely. Well, guys, thanks for letting me uh, stop by and bring some movies over. This was fun. Oh, this is Thank perfect. You. Thanks, man. Thank you. Man, I can't wait to watch some of these holiday movies. You know, I've got I've got my party mix ready to go. Maybe a few sausage cheese balls to be safe. Yeah, I mean, you got to have that stuff. Uh, yeah, there's there's some great stuff there. I mean, you know, Snowball Express. That's that's gonna take you pretty far. But I just hope some people uh, can stick around and watch watch all these movies. Because you think we got enough snacks for everybody? Oh, I know. We've got plenty of snacks. We're, okay. we're good for that. And you know, with We've got the Christmas stuff, but with, you know, Snowball Express, that's good all winter. That's right. So we can just keep the party going. Evergreen. Evergreen, yeah. Maybe we can watch that movie from uh, Disney Channel about the kids that build the snow fort. But that, that ends, that ends not, tragically. I was thinking about that the other day. But, you know, some some sadness is, is part of winter, you know, so... It's, yeah. uh, it's all in there, the gumbo. Part of your Canadian winter combat uh, that right. ends, right. ends poorly right. for the children. But not tonight. Oh not tonight. We're not we're not watching that one. No, 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 no. This is a festive occasion. And speaking of which Hey, looks like we have another visitor. Yeah, the man, the party's really picking up. Hey everybody, look, it's author and director of the Walt Disney Archives, Becky Klein. Hi, Becky. How's it going? <laughs> Hi, how you doing, Michael? Good. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Come on in. Uh, are you a cocoa or an eggnog person? Oh, I'm definitely an eggnog person. Oh, you're definitely an eggnog person. Well, that's great. Yeah, well, I love eggnog. We'll, uh, we'll serve you up some. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and welcome in. Uh, we're, so, we're so happy to have you here. We hope you've had a, a good year. Oh, you know, it's been a strange year and, um, yeah, we're doing as best we can, but you know, it's, it's the holiday. So no matter what you're doing, that's always going to be fun. Absolutely. Uh, so I hear that you have a new book for us this holiday season. Yeah, I've got a great new book. It's called holiday magic at the Disney parks and it just was launched on October 20th. So it's brand new for the holiday season this year. Brand new. So let me first say, this is a massive book. It, it's uh, <laughs> nearly 400 pages and is a great coffee table size 
tome. It's about the size of a coffee table. Yeah, uh, <laughs> right. It's it's also a group effort. Uh, obviously, our listeners know who you are, but why don't you tell us a little about your co-authors? Well, I would be happy to. My co-authors are Graham Allen and Charlie Price, who um, I don't I have not known Charlie that long. I know him now from working with him, but Graham and I are old pals. And um, we started this project together. Uh, I think we started working together on it, the three of us, about three or four years ago. But Graham and I have been talking about it and have been planning it going back almost 10 years. The first time we wrote an article together about the holidays. And uh, so we're good friends and we've gotten to know Charlie really well. And now we're all good friends. Wow. Well, that's great. That's great. So this is something you've had in mind for a long time then. Yeah. In 2009, we, uh, when we launched D23, we did the, uh, the first year's issue of the, the magazine, which is Disney 23. Uh, they asked me to do a holiday article for that issue for the winter uh, quarter. And so I thought, oh, that'd be really fun. You know, I'd written a few things about candlelight and I'd written a little bit about the holidays. So I'd done qu- quite a bit of research, but I thought, oh, you know, it would be even more fun is to bring my friend Graham in. And Graham Allen and I um, sing together in the Disney Employee Choir. And that's how we met. And Excellent. we've been singing together for years and years and years. Um, I started singing with the choir in 89 and I think he started in 90. So we've been singing together with with Candlelight for years. And so he's a huge fan of, of Disney at the holidays. That's his favorite thing is, to, you know, decorate for Christmas. And and uh, so I knew he would be really interested. And so we worked together on the article and wrote it. And it was so successful. Then they asked us to do a presentation about it in um, what they call Magic and Merriment, which was an event that we did for D23 at Walt Disney World. And so Graham and I went down there and did a, a presentation on it. And we had so much fun. And of course, that started getting, you know, the mind, the mind twirling. And we decided that we thought we'd have to pitch a book. So we, uh, we reached out to Disney Editions and pitched the, uh, the idea of a book. So fast forward a little bit, uh, a few years back, uh, Charlie Price had uh, pitched an idea of doing a, a Halloween book with Disney Editions. And they had been kicking around this idea and they knew we wanted to do the, the holiday, winter holidays, Christmas and New Year. And so they thought, well, why don't we just do one giant book? And so they put the, the three of us together. And so we created one gigantic tome and it is big. It, you're right. It needs a coffee table that's pretty sturdy to hold it. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we did that on purpose and we, we made a very conscious effort to um, make it mostly photography because that's the thing about the holidays you know it's very visual you know there's the sights and and but there's the sounds and the smells and all that of course but it's mostly a visual treat and so we wanted to make sure that we we just made it big and glorious and and with lots of photography and and that was a conscious choice there's there's text of course but uh, we wanted to really focus on the imagery Sure. Well, you know, you talk about photography, there are nearly 2000 images in this. <laughs> There's, and yeah. you know, <laughs> historically, the holidays have been something that they do so well uh, in the parks. How do you how do you begin to pull something like that together when you have so much material? You know, it's, it was a challenge. And that's why it took so many years to do. Um, the first thing was, is we did research, we went into the archives, we went into the various photo libraries around the company. And, you know, kind of sat down and said, well, you know, what do we want to cover? And we decided we wanted to cover everything. So it was all parks, both domestic and internationally, 
all the years from 1955 to the present. And then we also decided we wanted to include not just the, the theme parks, but we wanted to include all the resorts and the uh, Disney Vacation Club resorts like Vero Beach and Hilton Head and Alani, and of course the cruise ships. So we decided that, you know, let's look and see what we have. And so we researched it all. We researched the, the history of it and put together our chronologies and did our, our factual research and then put together kind of a wish list of this is what we've got already in our in our research. But there was so much more that we couldn't find photography for. We couldn't find what exactly what we wanted. And so God bless Graham Allen because he's a wonderful photographer and he is a great world traveler. And so he went all over the world taking photos. And of course, there's a limited window when you're talking about Halloween and Christmas. Mm. He had to go at different times. So he had, to, he had to go to Shanghai for Halloween. And then he had to go back for the holiday for Christmas, Christmas and New Year. So it was it was a big thing. He traveled thousands and thousands and thousands of miles and and. He, did, he just took some amazing photography. And so by the end, we had whittled down our wish list to, we had photos that, that represented just about everything that we wanted. And so that was, you know, details of decor. You know, a book like this, there's so many close-up details that you don't, you don't see in publicity photos. So there may be great publicity photos or beautiful landscapes of the parks and things like that, but you don't see, you know, the, the minute details of a wreath, you know, and, and see that there's a rubber chicken in it or, you know, or, in, you know, there's just, there's so many fascinating little details in the, in the uh, decor. And that was what was wonderful about taking our own photos is that we could focus on those things to show how detailed Disney gets with this kind of thing. And it's amazing when you look at the detail shots, it just, it's really eye opening. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because that is one thing that stood out to me were the details. Uh, like you said, things you don't get in just sort of the stock publicity photos. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really lovely detailed views of decorations, things, you know, it, it reminded me a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of times you see the Japanese uh, fan magazines from uh, huh? Tokyo where they'll go through and just find the smallest little details and it'll just be one detail after another. And this is that that eye of detail, which is really fun and uh, really does credit to the decorations and the amount of work that goes into these things. Yeah, we wanted we wanted the big glorious pictures of of you know the events and the and and the ones that you would expect to see, but then we also wanted to go in and show just the simplest little things, whether it's a you know a pumpkin or or you know some of the foods you know that that that's something like you mentioned in Japan they do a lot of that they're very into the to, into the food and so you look at Disney fan magazine for example, and you'll see you know these great you know, little, little bites or little desserts and things like that. And you don't, you don't see that in, in American publications so much. And so we wanted to make sure that we did that too, just go in and show some of the treats and things. And then of course, you know, there's inside the, the special overlays of the attractions. And the fascinating thing about attraction overlays is that, um, most of the pictures in the book we took from a guest perspective. So you're, when you're looking at the book, you're seeing what a guest would see in one of our parks, but of course, the one thing that we had to do was go in after hours to some of the attractions and shoot them. So for It's a Small World holiday, we had to go in three o'clock in the morning and, and shoot in there because we had to turn off the movement 
we did we had to we turned off the sound because that would drive us crazy but um <laughs> you know so we went in with the show lighting on and all of the movement that the audio animatronics had to be you know turned off so they were still you know that kind of thing so we had to go into the haunted mansion holiday and it's a small world and things like that and take those kind of pictures wow. uh, but wow. most of the time the pictures that we took were from inside the park during open hours with with guests there and and everything so that that what you see in the book is what you would see as a guest in the park. The cool thing I think about it though is that because um, because we are here in Southern California, of course, there's a lot of you know photography and things of Disneyland, Walt Disney World, easy to go. But a lot of people have never seen the international parks. Most people have not had that opportunity to travel overseas, and so this is a, a way for them to see what they do in in Tokyo and what they do in in China and Hong Kong and. Disneyland Paris, Shanghai, and um, and experience something that they may never get a chance to to go and do on their own. And so we wanted to make sure that it was from a guest perspective so that they could see, this is what I would see if I was really there. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a fun fun thing to look at, the way the, because each park does their, does their own thing in their own special way. And so it's really fun to look at how how things are similar but different, you know. Yeah, you know, we have one section that's all about, um, say, the reindeer, you know, so you can see every every kind of Magic Kingdom style park has a you know reindeer in their holiday parade, right. but they all look a little bit different. And the, the gingerbread men, they all look a little bit different, you know, and and you can see this is it's really fascinating to see what the toy soldiers look like, say, in, in Japan, as opposed to Disneyland Paris or in, you know, Walt Disney World. They're they're all there, but they're a little bit different, and so that's fun to see too. And of course, all the Christmas trees and everything like that. They're they're the same the world over, but they have their own special style. Sure. As a history nerd, obviously, uh, I was excited to see you pull in some really fun historical bits about past celebrations at Disneyland. Yeah. Uh, old celebrations, and we we all know you're kind of an expert on the subject of weird Disney. So, uh, do you have any favorite weird tidbits from the olden days? Um, yeah, you know, the early years of Disneyland's celebrations for the holiday, you know, were, were a little, little strange, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of money, uh, in the, in the fifties and early sixties. They didn't, they didn't have the wherewithal because they'd spent so much money on getting the park built that there wasn't a lot of extra money for big celebrations and, and the grand things that, we think of today as Disney at the holidays. And so they, they did some kind of homegrown stuff. You know, this, this book is about not just the the winter holidays of Christmas and new year. And uh, we added in lunar new year, things like that, but it also is of course the autumn holidays. And so some of the wackier things are from the, the autumn section. So we've got things like, you know, horseless carriage day and Sadie Hawkins day. And of course, Dixieland at Disneyland, which isn't too weird, but it's magnificent. But there's there's just really interesting things like you know the parade of the pumpkins, which was kind of wacky, and you know kids carrying their pumpkins down Main Street, you know, and being judged by Sergeant Garcia and and <laughs> the big musketeer. That's kind of wacky, you know, things like that. Piano Teachers Day, they, they the Wurlitzer <laughs> uh, company you know, sponsored this day where all these piano teachers would come from all over Southern California and they had all these pianos out in town square and you'd, wow. you know, they'd, they'd all play. Um, so just kind of strange things like that, that, that they could afford to do because they just brought in local, you know, guests and performers and things to, to come in and be on stage and to, to do their thing. Um, it wasn't until like 
around the Tencennial in 65 when they started doing some, you know, more grand type of events that, that you know, were, were what you think of as spectaculars today. So the, the 50s, mostly in the early 50s, of course, the one big thing, and, and I have to say it is quite weird when you, when you talk about it, but the big event for, for Christmas in 1955 was just exactly what you would think of as, you know, a Disneyland holiday event was a circus. And <laughs> sure. yeah, you, know, you don't really think about circuses at Disneyland. Sure, but, why not? Yeah, why not? But you know what was really fun was that Walt, being the master of synergy, decided he wanted a circus because he loved circuses from the time he was a kid. So he decided he wanted his own circus at Disneyland. Well, that was an interesting idea. And then because he was promoting the children's television show that year that he was opening, which was the Mickey Mouse Club on ABC, he thought, well, I'll get some synergy in here and I'll make it a Mickey Mouse Club circus. And then of course they couldn't get it open right at the, you know, when the park opened. So they decided, well, we're going to launch this at the holidays and we're going to add in Santa. So what they had was this really <laughs> weird amalgamation of a three ring circus that had trapeze acts and wild animal acts and, and, you know, everything you could imagine in a big top tent. And then they also had the Mouseketeers, which they, they, these kids are so talented, but they brought them in and they had them doing, you know, ladder acts and working with the acrobats <laughs> and performing as part of the circus. And then, of course, the grand finale would be Santa Claus coming in in his sleigh and a giant white Christmas tree, a big fabric, sparkling white Christmas tree that that rose up from the center ring to the top of the big top. And, and then they had the... Uh, kind of parade around the big top with Santa and his sleigh and the the kids dressed up as nursery rhyme characters and <laughs> some really wacky um, character costumes. You know, they were still had some pretty strange ones in those early years. So all of them walking around and, and singing and it, around this giant tree. And it, it, wow. the whole thing just sounded so strange to me. I, I, I knew quite a bit about it you know, before I had researched it many years ago, but it was really fun to go in and, and pull the older pictures. And, and uh, I, I would like to do, I would love to do a whole book just on the circus. There's so much, it's fascinating. And there's a lot of really great imagery. So, but it was fun to put that in the book. And I think that's definitely one of the weirder, weirder things in the book. And of course, there's one photo that I just absolutely adore is it's a photo that is very near and dear to my heart. It was taken in, taken in Tomorrowland, and it's Santa's sleigh, and it has the Dickens carolers on it, and also some of the, the, the uh, spacemen from Tomorrowland, and they're all together in the sleigh, posing, <laughs> and it's just, it's just the wackiest photo you can possibly imagine, and I, I love, love that photo, and then one, it's on page 151. And the funniest thing about it is that right in the middle, there's two Dickens carolers, a man and a woman. Uh, and the man is in the middle of the, the two ladies and he's holding up a top hat. And all of a sudden I realized that that was my college choir director. Mel oh Young. my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that, that's a, just about the weirdest thing in the book. And, and it, it, it was so fun. Graham, God bless him, you know, was working on it. He's like, this guy, this has to have a whole page. So it, it has a full page spread of, Santa sleigh with the spaceman and three Dickens carolers. <laughs> it's, it is the Christmas of the future. That That's right. Is and a, a little bit of unexpected Disney DNA in your life that you had. Isn't no that idea. funny? 
I know. And I didn't realize it was him until I was doing some research on something else. I found these other photos that were of the Dickens carolers on Main Street. And it said Milt Young. And I looked at it and I looked closer at the, at the and I recognized him from the photo and went, oh, my gosh, that is so bizarre. That and then I realized he was the caroler in that in the, the shot that I had you know enjoyed for so many years. That's incredible. <laughs> so yeah, the, the such a coincidence, but fun. Indeed, I, you know these early celebrations sound like such a fever dream. I mean, <laughs> you think of how amazing it would be as a kid to be at Disneyland and you're seeing a circus and it's Christmas, but then you've got all the Mouseketeers there. How yeah. crazy would that be? Yeah, and Jimmy Jimmy Dodd was the ringmaster, you know, and and they were all in there. Roy Williams was involved, you know, and and they just it's just so weird, you know. Can you imagine the show just launched and it's an instant hit on TV, and then you can go down to the park and see them in person? And it's like, did they have any time off ever? I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> I they don't think so. I, mean, I don't think just... so. Between school and and filming and going down to the park, those kids were pretty right. busy. They seem to be having the time of their lives, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they really knew how to use, like you mentioned, Henry Calvin and like Guy yeah. Williams being there, and Walt knew how to use his people. He'd have Fez Parker and Buddy Epps in there yeah. for things, and yeah. uh, it just must have been mind blowing to see the see your heroes in person. Absolutely. Well, that was one of the things in the fall section. We talk about Zorro days. And so in 57, when Zorro uh, debuted on television, it was also a huge hit. And so they had Zorro days each fall at Disneyland and they brought down the cast. They did stunt shows and, you know, they would, they, they were the, you know, the, the real actors do, you know, they had, they had stunt men and, and working with them. But yeah, they would do they would do sword fighting, and you get to see you know Monasterio and and Zorro fighting you know in the in the bandstand area, and and you know they'd be up on top of the Mark Twain you know dueling and and running in and out of the Golden Horseshoe, and um, <laughs> pretty fabulous, pretty fabulous wow. stuff. And uh, they did that several years. I I know it started in '57. I think they did it for three years. And um, wow, yeah. And then they started adding in Thanksgiving the following year. I think. I think it was in 58, they added some a Thanksgiving uh, banquet at, at the Arab Buffet at the, uh, at the chicken plantation restaurant. And oh. so then they had the waitresses dressed up as pilgrims and you could go and, and have your Thanksgiving dinner there because it all took, it took place over the Thanksgiving weekend. So then, you know, they added in the Indian village and the, and the chicken plantation and, and made it a, a more a Thanksgiving holiday featuring Zorro. Which <laughs> naturally another one that's a little <laughs> <laughs> well we all give thanks for Zara. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And you know, there's that's a little wacky. One of one of my favorite photos though in the book too is um the uh, Christmas star on top of the Matterhorn. I we put that photo in because there's a it was a publicity shot that they took of Santa standing on top of the Matterhorn, guiding in the the giant star with the by crane that always sat on top of the Matterhorn. And that was one of my favorite things when I was a kid. If we'd go down to uh, Orange County and go past Disneyland, we'd always look for it. But of course, when we were going to the park, we would always watch for the Matterhorn and, and then seeing it there with the giant star on top of it sparkling was pretty exciting for me. But uh, so that's, a, that's a picture I love too. We grew up with this, uh, I guess, the Pirates of the Caribbean to the World of Tomorrow. And there's a scene in there where they have the Christmas star up on the Matterhorn. And that always used to confuse me because it was not a Christmas episode. But <laughs> right. um, it's really cool. Really cool star that they had on there. That's beautiful. 
I was curious if you have any stories from Candlelight. I mean, I've never seen the one in Disneyland. I'd love to go to Disneyland sometime. I, I, the Epcot one that we uh, have been to is always really special. But yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder if you have any special memories from that. Oh, so many. You know, the the wonderful thing, um, Walt Disney World and Disneyland are, are a bit different. So even though you've seen it at Walt Disney World, you, you got to have an opportunity someday to see it at Disneyland because it's it's so it's so magnificent it's it's a wonderful production in both places they're a little bit different though that the concert is completely different in two different in different places they they sing some of the same carols but they're different arrangements and at disneyland it's much more classic you know traditional arrangements and and kind of a classic feel where at walt disney world at epcot it's got more that international flavor mm-hmm. to it and they sing in different languages and and I I love both of them. I've I've actually performed at both. Oh, I've, cool. I've, I've performed at Disneyland some twenty five times. I think. Holy cow! Times. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I started singing with the choir um, in nineteen ninety four, and I think Graham started in ninety five. I think he said, but I started in ninety four, and I I performed there almost every single year. Uh, the the last few years, I haven't had the opportunity to perform because I've been just so busy, but. Um, I, I do, I do perform and it's, it's just the most spectacular way to start your holiday is, you know, we start practicing, we start rehearsing in September and all the way up to, to Christmas. And it's just, it's so exciting and it, it gets the holiday started off the right way. What's really marvelous about it is that it's the longest tradition in Disney parks history it's been going on ever since, you know, the, the very first group that sang on the train station steps started in 1955. And they were just carolers, uh, the Dickens carolers and the Disneyland band. And then the local groups that were performing there that day, they kind of massed them all together on the train station steps. And in 55 and 56, they, they just sang carols to the crowds. And that's where, that was the genesis of it. And it got bigger and bigger every year until it was a candlelight procession with fanfare trumpeters and bell choirs and um, sign language interpreter and of course conductor and the Disneyland orchestra and and then a celebrity narrator and so they they added the celebrity narrator in the in the late 50s and I think it was 57 they added in someone to actually read the Christmas story and so the groups sing in between passages of the, of the nativity story and they've had some amazing narrators over the years. It started with Dennis Morgan, who was a, a famous mm. for television. And then, um, but they've had folks like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne, um, just huge celebrities, uh, some some kind of strange ones like Elliot Gould, <laughs> folks like that, <laughs> Jason Robards, and of course, then Disney legends like Dick Van Dyke and James Earl Jones and even Whoopi Goldberg and, and, you know, these lovely, lovely people that, that have these glorious voices reading this, these passages. And of course it, it went from 55 when it, you know, the genesis of it up and through in 1971, when they opened Walt Disney world, they had to have it. So they did it there um, on, they did it in front of the castle in, in the early seventies at Walt Disney world and then moved it to the train station. So it was similar to Disneyland. And then eventually they moved it to Epcot where it got that kind of international overlay, but it's very similar. They have the living Christmas tree in the middle, which is um, at Disneyland. It's the employee choir, which is Disneyland uh, cast members, Disney employees from the studio and WDI. 
and we all rehearse together and then perform as the living centerpiece of the of the concert. And they do the same thing down at Walt Disney World with with the uh, cast members at Walt Disney World that are forming that Christmas tree. And of course, they they do a lot more performances at Walt Disney World because they do it from Thanksgiving through New Year. Um, and three shows a day. So there's a lot of performances. They only do it for one weekend at Disneyland. So there's only four shows, but uh, it's, it's an amazing experience. And if you haven't done it at Disneyland, I recommend you go and do that. And of course, if you, if Walt Disney World is your chosen destination, go and see it there because it's fabulous. When we were very young, we saw um, at Disney World, we saw it on Main Street and uh, Rock Hudson yeah was the narr- yeah. was the narrator that uh, was really- yeah yes it was and we are i have i was fortunate enough the first uh, disneyland candlelight that i got to see when i was living out there was kurt russell which was so exciting for oh. so many reasons oh you know? cool yeah. he was terrific too he, he, he was, was really good i mean he's yeah. just got that voice he had a big old beard it was great <laughs> Yeah, I think he was filming a Western at that time. So he came in with a full beard. He was he was wonderful. He was one of he was a great narrator. But what that what is so great about that ceremony about that event is it really feels, you know, you talked about these early events back in the 50s when Disneyland was really a community park. It Mm -hmm. was really close and it still is very closely tied in with Anaheim and the surrounding area. But back then it was kind of another level and you feel still when you go to candlelight it's got that real civic feeling yeah. to it yeah it definitely does yeah the early days of disneyland when they had holiday land and and people you talk about civic events people would come and have their their company picnic or have their event you know at holiday land and then come into the park for the evening or they would you know go back and forth between the two and and yeah that that it does have that feeling of of it's it's kind of like the feeling of a of a parade because you line up on the parade route and watch the the carolers process with the candles down main street. And then, then people just kind of pack in to, to uh, the town square area and watch it from, from the sidewalks. And, and it's just, it's just magical. It really is. And it, it does have that kind of very civic feeling. It's got that, that, you know, every little town has their tree lighting ceremony and things like that. And, and the idea of coming together and, and the fun thing when you're caroling and processing down the, the street is to watch the people who are singing along. And that, mm. that to me is very touching when you're, you're walking along, carrying your candle and trying not to trip over the train, you know, the tracks in the street, that sort of thing. <laughs> but you're walking along with this thing and it's so moving because you've got this beautiful organ accompaniment and then you look over and you see people very reverently just standing there on the on the sidewalks watching you go by and you'll see people singing along and i think that's that's what's exciting especially at the end of the concert when everybody's we're singing hallelujah chorus and everybody stands up and you've got this whole huge crowd of people in front of you that that are all standing and singing along and it's it's magical and you know we sing silent night and the second verse you know they the conductor turns around and actually has the the group sing, you know, so everybody in the, in town Mm. square is singing silent night together, which is pretty powerful. You know, it's pretty, I think one of the coolest things though, about, about, I wish people could experience this themselves, but when you're up on that Christmas tree, you're way up high, you're up almost to the roof line of the, of the train station. 
And during dress rehearsal, because we always rehearse after the park closes on the Thursday before. And the park is empty. We're we're just up there with the with the Disneyland Orchestra and everything. And but we have to climb up onto the to the platform. And when we're up there rehearsing, we always finish with the Hallelujah Chorus. And the most amazing thing about being up there during rehearsal and also during the concert is that when you we sing, sing the end of the Hallelujah Chorus and it stops dead at the end and then the final notes happen, you can hear the echo of the singing bouncing back off of the Matterhorn. Oh, wow. Wow, that's neat. So, it's just, you know, you're in this empty park and you sing these gigantic notes and you stop and then you hear the echo come right back at you. And it's it's really something. I'll tell you, it's one of those things that you'll never forget if you've experienced it. Yeah, it give you chills, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty pretty fun. But, you know, I met some of my best friends singing Candlelight. You know, I have, of my Disney friends, I have a, a group of girls that, you know, we we still have calls and and we have girls nights and do things. We've been singing together for thirty years and and you know we're we're best. Some of my best friends at Disney are from Candlelight. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I mean that that in itself is amazing holiday memory. Uh, yeah. You know this book covers the fall and winter seasons in the park and we're, since we're right in the middle of the season right now, I you know aside from Candlelight, uh, do you have any other favorite? sort of holiday memories or traditions from, you know, your past experiences in the park? Well, you know, um, Disney used to do a, a dis they always had the family holiday party. Now we do more kind of a mix in thing where you get to take your family down and spend you know time at the park at the holidays and you get to choose when you go. But when I first started at Disney in, um, I started in 1989. And so throughout the nineties, mostly they would have the family holiday party where the park would be closed in the evening. And it'd be just like any private party that, that the park has held in the past. They used to have gas company night and girl scout night, and, you know, <laughs> Lockheed night. I used to go with my dad for Lockheed night, <laughs> but um, the park would be closed and then it would be a special uh, group that would come in and we'd do it for the, the family holiday party. And what was really fun is that the, the executives took over uh, the, the roles that the, online cast members used to do. And so that was really fun to go down and watch, you know, Michael Eisner, you know, handing out candy canes or scooping. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Carnation or watching Frank Wells drive the fire truck down the street, <laughs> you know, and, and it's so funny to see, you know, you walk up to get on big thunder mountain and the person that's seating you in the car is your senior VP. It's wacky. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Well, before we go, Jeff, do you have any anything else you'd like to know Christmas wise? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to thanks thank you for for talking to us about all this stuff. It's so interesting, and thanks for this book. It's really a, a great picture book, beautiful. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it, and I and I hope that anybody who who uh, hears this and hasn't seen it yet, and they go out and get it, you know, please enjoy it. And um, it was done with a lot of love. Well, thanks for dropping into our Christmas party, Becky, and for everything you do to keep uh, the Disney history alive. And hopefully we can all meet up again at Expo next year. Oh, I can't wait. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. In the rush of noise and laughter, all too soon your children grow. Oh, you guide their ways and you guard their days until one day they go. When the house is strangely silent and you dream of way back when, 
Remember when it's Christmas time They'll come home again Well, that about wraps up our inaugural Progress City Christmas. Uh, before we spike the nog and start singing carols, I need to thank our guests, Jeff Curdy and Becky Klein, as well as our wacky neighbor, Jay, for dropping by. Jeff, it's it's been quite a party so far. Yeah, I'm humbled. You know, you, uh, you move into the neighborhood and you you put up a Christmas party sign and you just hope that people come and show up. And these, these people were nice enough to share their Christmas memories and experiences with us. And it's just been a great year and, and uh, a great Christmas so far. I, very fortunate so thanks to all of them and, and all of you for listening absolutely lots of warm fuzzies and you know the christmas season's just kicking off so everybody you know we've talked about some great books that you can read over the holiday season get your cup of cocoa or your eggnog going and uh, kick back with a good book and enjoy some of this wonderful disney artwork and photography that even if you can't make it out this year to the parks you can visit in spirit and see some of the wonderful things that await you once the world gets going again, hopefully pretty soon. But I'll echo your sentiments, Jeff, that it's it's been, despite being a difficult year, it's been a good year for us to do uh, doing this. It's been a real pleasure getting back to do it. So cheers to everyone and, you know, Cheers to you for helping getting this back going. And I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what the new year brings. A lot of exciting things. We have some things in the works. Things. And oh, absolutely. Business. So many things. Yes. Well, you know, and this isn't even the last Christmas surprise we have for you this year. We'll be back in a few weeks with another holiday treat. But before we go, we really want to take a moment to thank our Patreon backers who help support the show, especially our new backers this month. Uh, the folks from Lowland Hum, Tara, and Greg. We really appreciate your help in keeping the show going and for deciding to become valued members of the Order of the Chili Bowl. If you want to join in on the fun, head to patreon.com slash progresscityusa for more info. And that's right. And if you want to reach us, you can always contact us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. Send us your thoughts. And uh, Michael's on Twitter, of course, at Progress City USA. I'm on Twitter at Jeff G. Crawford. And please rate and review us on iTunes if you use iTunes, or the podcast app. Uh, tell your friends and uh, spread the word. Help us spread the word about the podcast. And we look forward to being with you all in a couple of weeks to share a special holiday treat before we sign off for this year. So from all of us to all of you, we hope you all have a Merry Christmas season. We'll see you before the actual Christmas day. So long, everybody.
You've been listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at arborridgestudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.